Hi, I'm Neil Stavum. Here's the podcast for Connecting Faith. Enjoy the conversation. Real conversations about how we live out our faith every day. Welcome to Connecting Faith. So good to have you along today. Thanks so much for tuning in. Grateful for the opportunity to get together and talk about real life. And we're going to talk about a stage of life today that I'm in, and maybe you are as well, or will be there soon. I think it was Robert Orban had said something about the best season of a parent's life is when your kids are old enough to shovel snow, but not old enough to drive the car. But uh, many of our uh, our families, uh, if you're like me and my wife and your kids have grown and they have moved out and so you are officially in the what's called the empty nest. And we have some experts to help us navigate that season of life with us today. Really looking forward to uh, hearing from Barbara Rainey and, and Susan Yates. And uh, Barbara is a wife and mother of six and grandmother of eight and, of course, speaker and best-selling author. And we've Enjoyed conversations with her in the past, uh, and her and Dennis, of course, uh, founded Family Life in Little Rock, Arkansas, back in 1976. They've co-authored some dozen books. And Susan is an international speaker and author of 10 books and a regular contributor for today's Christian Women magazine. And uh, she is, uh, and, uh, and her husband are proud uh, parents of five and children and seven grandchildren. And uh, together they've written... The Guide to the Empty Nest, Barbara and Susan's Guide to the Empty Nest. And that's going to be our focus in the moments ahead. So, um, Barbara and Susan, uh, welcome. Barbara, I guess we'll say welcome to you. Uh, we hear you on Family Life uh, today uh, here on Faith Radio. Just glad to have you on with us on Connecting Faith. Well, thanks so much, Neil. Glad to be here and to spend this time with you and your listeners. And Susan, uh, great to meet you. We're looking forward to having you join our conversation as well. Oh, thank you. All right, so I mean, you have you gals have been kind of together talking about this for a number of years, and obviously, as we just said, you both have children and grandchildren. But maybe to start out, uh, introduce our listeners to your stories. Your uh, give us your empty nest story, if you will. Well, my empty nest story um, started unlike what I was expecting. We had a. Um, Uh, Our first six were gone and off to college and different things, and our last two were pretty close together in age. They were just a year apart in school. And um, one of of the two um, became a bit of a prodigal for a season, and that totally changed the way I expected to enter the empty nest because um, she made some choices that uh, she's not proud of now and and uh, uh, didn't graduate with her class. And so, you know, parents look forward to the senior year. They look forward to prom. They look forward to all the festivities and the excitement. And for us, we had this different kind of experience that we hadn't anticipated or looked forward to. It wasn't a part of what I imagined it would be like. And so I entered the empty nest in a, a bit of a valley as opposed to entering it with excitement for the future um, or looking forward to more free time or being able to do things that I looked forward to doing, I entered it in sort of a dark place. And so that made my experience very different than what I had anticipated uh, to be when my kids were little or even when they started in high school. But I learned a lot through it, and we tell those stories and more in, in the book and hope that will be encouraging to women. 
Susan, how about you? And my story was a little bit different, Neil. I'm a couple years ahead of Barbara, and when this conversation began was actually we were at the beach together with another friend, Mary, and we were going for a walk on the beach, and Barbara was approaching the empty nest. Mary was not quite there, and I was into it a little bit, and Mary asked both Barbara and me, you know, how do you do the empty nest? (laughs) And Barbara and I looked at each other, and we just burst out laughing because we didn't know, even though I was already there, and Barbara was close to being there, but what we realized is there were no role models out there for us, and there were very few books to tell us how to navigate it. So that was the origin, really, of this book. Barbara and I decided, gosh, we need to interview some women across the country and find out who are a little bit ahead of us and find out how they've navigated this because the interesting thing about the empty nest is the empty nest season is a bit like jello. You know, you sort of think you get it figured out and then it leaks. <laughs> it's wobbly. It's not neat. Whereas the season, perhaps, of parenting toddlers, that is a clear beginning and a clear ending. And the season of parenting teens has, it's a little more ambiguous, but it has a beginning and an end. But the empty nest goes on and on, and it begins at different points for different women, and we react differently. Uh, Susan uh, and uh, Barbara, you can jump in as well, but talk about what was the maybe the first adjustment you had to make or maybe the, the biggest adjustment. I guess we clearly, when we're talking empty, it means that children aren't around, but what, was that the biggest adjustment? Well, let me tell you when it first hit me. Uh, Our children, all five children, married fairly early right out of college. And, in fact, our numbers four and five were twins. And they both got married the summer after they graduated from college, within six weeks of each other. And I remember when Susie, who married first, came home back home for Libby's wedding from essentially her honeymoon and packed up the twins' room that they had grown up in, this 9 by 10 room, emptied it out of all of her stuff. And I remember going in that room after the last Yates family wedding and sitting on the floor and looking around the walls. And, you know, they were dirty and there were frame prints. And I looked in the closet, and the only thing in the room in the closet was a faded old blue prom dress that had fallen on the floor and as I sat on the floor gazing at these empty walls in that old faded prom dress that was no longer needed I just burst into tears because I felt like oh my goodness that prom dress represents me I I once was needed and now I just feel like I'm not needed anymore so that was my sort of first meltdown and it was what was surprising to me, Neil, was that I was unprepared. And I think that was the biggest surprise because I didn't have any role models. And I would say that my experience was similar, although my circumstances were different. But Susan and I have learned in talking to women that being in, unprepared is common to all of us. And secondly, not being needed anymore is common to all of us. And that's the biggest surprise. Um, because we as women um, really enjoy the fact that our children need us. I mean, there are times when we get tired and we wish they wouldn't need us so much, but it is very fulfilling that we are needed for their survival from the moment they're born. And we kind of get used to that. That sort of becomes a part of our identity. And when our kids leave, uh, whether they go to college or whether they go to the military or or just leave home for other kinds of pursuits, we're not needed as m- anymore in the same ways for sure. And that's a very, very big adjustment for us to make as women because we have to sort of readjust who we are 
and what do we do and how how do I use my time now? And as Susan said, there aren't there aren't people ahead of us that are talking about it. One thing we've discovered is that most women who enter the empty nest do it very alone. They're lonely. They don't um, talk to each other. Women, when we have babies, we throw showers, and when our daughters get married, we throw showers and we celebrate. But when women enter the in- empty nest, there are no parties. There are no gatherings. There aren't places where women can gather and say, talk to me about what you experienced when you went into the empty nest. Most of us do it very alone, and that makes it even harder because we don't have someone to share the journey with, and uh, it makes our it makes our loss even greater. Well, let me just follow up on that, Barbara. Should there be a party? I mean, is this a is this is a, is this a reason is this a reason for partying? Well, actually, Susan and I think that it is a reason for partying. Now, it may not be something that you would do immediately. Um, I think all of us need different kinds of things. I needed a longer transition time because of our daughter who was a prodigal um, because it presented other things that we had to work through besides just graduation and going off to college or to work or to service. But um, but I do think that we are missing something when we don't celebrate the fact that we've finished this grand adventure with lots of ups and lots of downs of raising children. There should be some kind of... A celebration where we say, way to go. Yeah, you made mistakes, so did we, but you finished well. Um, and we don't do that. We don't celebrate the end of our parenting journey. We celebrate our kids graduating, but we don't celebrate our entrance into the empty nest. And um, for most of us, the empty nest is decades long. Um, it's the beginning of another half of life. And I, we think, Susan and I think, it should be started with a little more, a little bit more fanfare than it is. In fact, we have a whole chapter on how to do that in our book. Yeah, we do. We actually have a chapter, Neil, that talks about what kind of party to have, how to plan the party, how to do the invitations, and who you might invite. And we have a friend in Alabama who has uh, used our book already, and she has had great success in reaching out to other empty nesters. She just goes down the list, gets a list from her high school and the list from all the sports team of every mom who has a sen- whose last child is a junior or senior in high school. And she just opens her home and invites them to come. And it's worked really well. I like it. Uh, we're talking... Uh, how to celebrate and how to adjust, how to prepare for The Empty Nest. Barbara and Susan's Guide to the Empty Nest is the book we're referencing. We do have a couple of copies we'll give away. It's uh, just newly updated from uh, Bethany House, and we want to make sure that you can uh, sign up for one of those. So if you uh, give us a call, we'll get your name in the drawing. We'll do the drawing here at the top of the hour, 877-933-2484. It's 877-93-FAITH. Or, uh, and if you have a question, love to have you join the conversation, 877-933-2484. Barbara Rainey, of course, um, uh, you here on uh, Family Life Today from time to time with her husband, Dennis. Uh, her and Dennis founded that back in 1976. They've written a number of books uh, together and individually. And Susan Yates, uh, international speaker and author of 10 books. And together, Barbara and Susan are going to give us some wise advice about uh, the empty nest. We're going to talk here in just a moment about, you know, how the... How the husbands react or often react and and talk about loss of dreams. Maybe talk a bit about dealing with the prodigal and some of those things as well. And what happens when the kids move back into the empty nest. All that coming up in a moment. So stay tuned.
Talking about uh, the empty nest today with uh, Barbara Rainey and Susan Yates, uh, Barbara and Susan's Guide to the Empty Nest. Uh, their uh, new updated book on that topic, and we've got some copies to give away. Uh, Barbara and Susan have been speaking and talking about this issue for uh, a number of years, and and uh, both are uh, experienced in it, and uh, they're both uh, wife and mothers and grandmothers and have some good encouragement for us today. And I'd love to have you join the conversation well if you'd like to come in at 877-933-2484. Uh, Barbara, I'll just maybe start with you. be interested in, uh, in Susan Addins well about how, how your husbands reacted. Uh, did they uh, experience the same feelings that you were? And maybe is it reasonable to expect that your husband will understand? Well, my experience was that Dennis didn't feel the same things that I did. I felt like I had been fired. I felt like I wasn't needed anymore. Um, and he, he wasn't fired because he still had his full-time job, and he still got up every morning and went to the office. And so even though life changed for him, and it was now just the two of us sitting across from each other at the dinner table instead of us with our kids, nonetheless, the biggest part of his day remained intact and unchanged, whereas the biggest part of my life was what had changed, and that was, was shepherding and raising kids for uh, several decades um, the interesting thing about our relationship was, though, that Dennis was really excited about the emptiness because he thought he was going to have me all back to himself. And he said things in that semester or so before our uh, our youngest went to college. He said several times, oh, I'm so excited about this because you can have an office right next to me and come in to work with me every day. <laughs> and I kind of chuckled and I thought to myself, I don't know if that's what I want to do. I'm not sure I want to go into the office every day. And yet I didn't want to tell him right away because I didn't want to burst his bubble because I knew he, he was looking forward to the future. And I was looking forward to the future, too. But I think he didn't understand that I needed some time to adjust. I needed some time to get my bearings. I needed some time to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And it wasn't going to be um, just stepping out of one thing and into the next one automatically. So we ended up having lots of conversations, and I, I said, you know, I, I may come in someday. I may come in a few days here and there, but that's just not who I am to come in and sit behind a desk every day. And and as we talked it through, he agreed and he understood, and, and we, we had some great conversations about the future, about what we wanted to do as a couple, what kinds of dreams we still had that we could accomplish together as a couple. And so it was a, it was overall a very good transition for us, but it was one that took time. And I think in this fast-paced um, instant gratification culture we live in, we oftentimes don't give ourselves the space we need to adjust to these these necessary and important transitions in life. You know, my experience was in a way similar to Barbara's in that it was a bigger transition for me than it was for my husband, John. But one of the things that we did because of the season in which the empty nest hit us, Neil, it was the, for me hitting the empty nest was when our last two got married because we had five children in seven years, so we were always sending somebody off as another one was coming up. So I didn't have time to experience the empty nest until really they all got married, which was pretty young. And I was a little bit nervous and actually frightened about, okay, what's our marriage going to look like now? So one of the things that we did that was just simply important, even more important for me than John, though afterwards he felt it was really important too, 
was we decided after the second wedding, which really was our official launch into the empty nest since all five would now be married, we left all of the wedding stuff a mess, borrowed a friend's beach house, and went on our own honeymoon. Hmm. And while we were on our own honeymoon, we went to a small chapel at the beach, and we went through the marriage vows again just for us because we saw this as the beginning of the rest of our married life. And that was just simply putting a symbolic stake in the ground, almost as if, okay, we're newlyweds in a way now, too, because it's just us. And that was the beginning, I think, of giving us a very positive vision. And like Dennis and Barbara, the beginning of some great discussions. Okay, what do we want this season to look like? What do we want it to look like? But I'd love just to throw in also that, in doing research for the book, we found that there is not one way that everybody responds. I remember we talked to a couple, Bess and Gary, who couldn't wait for the empty nest because raising their kids had been tough, and they themselves had had different approaches to discipline, and they'd struggled on a tight budget. They'd postponed so many of their dreams in order to be with their kids. And now that their last one was leaving, they couldn't wait for it to be just us again. But then we have a friend named Shelley who was just the opposite, and she had poured her life into her kids, and they'd come first. But as the last one got ready to leave, she was scared. And her comment to us was she said, Gals, I don't even feel like I know my husband. I haven't been alone with him since I was 26. Our whole life has revolved around the kids. Now what will we talk about at the dinner table? What will we do on weekends? I don't even know if I have energy left to put into this relationship. And I don't know if I want to. So there are many different impacts depending on your your own couple relationship and a lot of other circumstances as to how you'll respond. But I think both Barbara and I feel like you need to see this as a big transition. You need to give it time, but you need to really communicate with your husband. You, uh, okay. I know you address that there is this this aspect of loneliness that's going to come, and husbands probably aren't aren't the ones that can fill that role exclusively. And maybe we assume that you know women can can find new relationships easier than men. So, do you recommend that? I mean, getting in some like maybe uh, plugging in a women's Bible study or some of those things. What what is helpful in maybe reestablishing to uh, address that loneliness issue? Well, Susan mentioned it earlier, and I think that if a woman is going into the empty nest and she's feeling that loneliness, <clears throat> excuse me, a good thing would be for her to find at least one other woman that she knows is also going into the empty nest and just have coffee for a few times and share your experience and talk about what you're learning. Um, there's a lot of camaraderie from sharing the same kind of um, experiences. So I think that if... <coughs> Excuse me, I got a tickle. Um, I think that that ideally, if if a woman can find a couple of other women who are also in the empty nest, um, it's just the same as when we had toddlers. We get together at the park and we talk about what our toddlers were doing and um, ways to to help them not throw their food on the floor anymore, that kind of thing. And the same camaraderie, I think, is beneficial when you're going into the empty nest. So that's why we love so much what our friend in Alabama is doing by gathering other women together and just making it available her home 
or going to a coffee shop where you can talk about what you're experiencing so you don't feel so alone. I think that's part of the problem is that we do experience it alone, but being with some other women can help. And one of the things we've done intentionally in the book, Neil, is we have questions at the end of each chapter, and we also have a four-week study session. So it's a great book to use in a a book club, for example. Some women this summer who are, their last one's about to graduate, this would be a great great tool to gather some other women around and say, hey, we want to go through this book together. Because the biggest compliment that Barbara and I get from discussing this and from the book is, oh, you made me feel normal. You made me feel normal. And so that's why it's so important to have some girlfriends that you can walk alongside. And the book just simply gives you a way that to gather around the crucial questions that each woman is feeling but perhaps not able to articulate. As you did mention, I mean, there are the reality is that uh, uh, late season divorces are not all that uncommon, right? There are couples that have poured their lives into their kids, discover that they maybe don't have anything to relate to each other. It's one of the reasons I like Susan's suggestion of getting away together as a couple soon after the empty nest so that you can reconnect. I remember being afraid that we wouldn't have things to talk about either because it's so easy to talk about your kids' activities and whether they whether they have homework or not and their friends and where they're going and when they'll be back and you know, that can dominate um, a couple's conversation for years when you're raising your kids. So <clears throat> her idea of getting away together as a couple, even if it's just going out to dinner um, and beginning to talk and dream together like you once did when you were uh, newlyweds or in the early days of your marriage, you, you dreamed a lot about what we might do, where we might go. And I think that dreaming needs to happen again in the emptiness because for most couples there will be decades ahead uh, of life that's just the two of them. We're talking Barbara and Susan's Guide to the Empty Nest, Discovering New Purpose, Passion, and Your Next Great Adventure. I hope you believe that, that uh, it is a, a whole new chapter, and God can do some great things if you're just willing to to dream and allow him to speak into those dreams. Barbara Rainey and Susan Yates, my guests today here on Connecting Faith. We do have some copies of uh, Barbara and Susan's Guide to the Empty Nest. Got a couple of copies to give away. So I want to encourage you to just sign up for that. It'll just be a great resource. Uh, you know, maybe you just needed someone to tell you, hey, this is this is normal. You can do this, and you could use it as an encouragement to someone else that you know, maybe in your, your neighborhood, your family. 877-933-2484 is the phone number to uh, sign up for a copy of the book. And if you have a question, you're welcome to join in. we got another 15 minutes or so to go. So... Give us a call and uh, be a part of the show, 877-933-2484. We're talking about the empty nest. We'll we'll get into uh, talking about parents that won't experience the empty nest. Maybe it's special needs children or maybe raising grandkids or dealing with the prodigals, all those things. We'll get to that coming up in the moments ahead. Stay tuned. That second season, and really it represents, uh, you know, decades that uh, we, we together with our spouses, or maybe it's as a single 
parent, but we're raising our kids and pouring our energy into them. And then there comes that empty nest when we when we launch them and they, they fly away. And then we're uh, looking, what do we do next? Barbara and Susan's Guide to the Empty Nest is a resource that we're talking about. And it's got some great advice, practical and uh, biblical perspective on uh, finding new purpose, passion, and the next great adventure. Barbara Rainey, of course, wife, mother of six, and grandmother of eight, speaker and best-selling author, uh, along with the dentist they founded Family Life in the Little Rock back in 1976, and Susan's uh, international speaker and author as well, and a regular contributor to uh, uh, today's Christian Women magazine. And together they've been speaking on this topic for a while, and we're honored to have them with us today. Uh, so maybe we can just say a bit, uh, ladies, about the, uh, the the kids that don't necessarily launch or maybe move back home. That's a little bit more common. And uh, uh, how does that change our view of the empty nest? Well, I was just mentioning before the break that we have uh, several friends who um, have uh, who have kids that are handicapped in one way or another and who don't leave home and can't leave home. And that's a completely different um challenge that many of us haven't faced personally. Susan and I, neither one have. Um, and we we talked to these friends and we've quoted them extensively in our book because that's a very real situation that many couples will find themselves in um, as they as they do enter the, the empty nest season um, and most of their kids leave, but not all. There's also the situation of these boomerang kids who leave and then they come back home. Um, and that's changing the landscape of marriages for a lot of couples in this uh, season of life when their kids have left high school and they've gone off to college, but then maybe they move back in. <clears throat> and that changes the dynamics of the relationship because you're not a parent anymore in the same way that you once were. And yet when a kid moves home, um, a grown-up kid, an adult kid moves back home, um, you have to establish some boundaries. You've got to s- decide how long this relationship's going to last. What does he or she have to do to contribute? Um, and that changes the relationship too, and it makes it makes it challenging. It can be a great gift. Um, our daughter moved back home um, uh, two years ago uh, while she was transitioning, and she lived with us for six months. And <clears throat> it was a wonderful experience. It was a great gift, but. She didn't move home um, thinking that she was going to stay here forever, and we knew she wasn't either. So we regarded it as a special uh, time that we had with her that we probably would never have again. So moms and dads today have those experiences with kids um, when they grow up that they may not that may not have been the norm in decades past. And it takes good focus. It takes being intentional. It takes uh, a husband and a wife working to make sure that their marriage stays the priority um, and that they, they have healthy boundaries with those kids who do move back home. Good. You know, Neil, one of the things that has been helpful to both me and Barbara is to visualize a seesaw. And the big, one of the big challenges of your children leaving home is that you are relinquishing control. And our tendencies on the seesaw can be, we're, generally speaking, we sit on either one end of the seesaw or the other. We are a helicopter parent on one end who really wants to stay in a, with a lot of control in their child's life, or we're a hands-off parent on the other end of the seesaw. And just briefly, a helicopter parent is one who hovers over her child. She's texting throughout the day. She's calling. Uh, the child calls and asks for advice. What should I wear? Where should I go? And, and the mother jumps right in. Now, 
the helicopter mom really loves her child, but in jumping in and managing and controlling the situation from afar, what the mother is unintentionally doing is saying, you are not capable of making these decisions, you need me. And what that does is it breeds insecurity in the child rather than independence and maturity. The uh, hands-off parent, on the other hand, may not call for weeks. And that's a an adjustment as well because, you know, if our kids particularly are still financially dependent on us in any way, which if they're in college, most of them are, uh, we need to be involved in their life. We need to be involved in their major decisions, their roommate decisions, their um, health decisions, things that are the big decisions. So the hands-off parent needs to perhaps be a little more in touch whereas the helicopter parent needs to let go. And if you visualize it as a seesaw, you may find that the mom is on one end of the seesaw and the dad is on the other, and what you need to do is move a little bit closer to the center. So like on a seesaw, you're balancing a little bit better. I'm interested, uh, Barbara, maybe Susan as well, just, uh, what, what are you uh, more likely leaning to? Are you, are you helicopter or hands-off? I mean, as your, your kids are adults, you have grandkids now, uh, how do you negotiate that uh, involvement investment in their lives well we have learned and i would say susan's probably uh, experienced this too but we've learned the hard way as most of us parents do um how much to say and how much not to say because um one of the things that we've realized as we've watched our kids uh, leave home and move through their 20s and into their 30s is they need to make their own way. They need to make mistakes just like we did. They need to try things and fail just like we did. And the more we um, are try to be involved and to give guidance and to protect them, help them from uh, help them make decisions, and hopefully help them not make bad decisions, we're really risking them not learning. Um, so I think that the the struggle for most of us is to. Uh, once our kids are independent, they're out of college, they have a job, or they're living on their own, the the struggle is is to let them <clears throat> be mature, let them learn, let them make mistakes. Um, you know, my tendency with uh, our daughter, who remained single for many years before she just got married last fall, um, in her early 30s, it was it was harder for me to to be um, to let her be independent because she was still single, and I felt some sense of responsibility um, to help to protect her and help guide her. And yet she didn't need that from me any more than my married kids did. She needed to be able to learn lessons, and we remained involved at a certain level. But there were times when, uh, with her and with all of our kids, we overstepped our bounds and said a few too many things, and they let us know that we'd, we'd said too much, and they appreciated that we cared and were concerned, but they really wanted to be able to do this on their own. And I think um, I think that that's a hard uh, place for parents to be because, as Susan was talking about, we love our kids very, very much. And when our kids hurt, we hurt. And when they suffer, we suffer. And when they make a bad decision um, and pay the consequences for it and we know all about it, we hurt with them. And so it's hard not to um, jump in there and try to rescue or protect because when we do that, we think we're making it easier for us too, but we're not. So um, we've learned. Dennis and I have learned a lot of lessons about keeping our mouths shut, not giving advice unless it's asked for, and even when we give advice, to give it 
carefully and um, to give it uh, with with some guidelines uh, for ourselves. In other words, we're we're not going to tell them what to do. We we kind of give options and say, well, you might think about this, but we don't say, oh, we think you should absolutely do this because that's that puts them in a real hard spot if they choose not to do what mom and dad suggest. So that's a big transition that most um, moms and dads experience in the empty nest is, is learning to relate to these new adults who are blossoming and becoming their own person um, because they're all going to make choices that we wouldn't approve of. And that's an important part of them becoming who they are. We've only got about uh, you know four or five minutes left. And I want to talk about, I know one of the the important parts of this uh, conversation is about, you know, helping us discover new purpose, passion, and your next great adventure. And I think you referred to maybe there was a time that you needed to adjust and, you know, Dennis is saying, oh, you know, come to work with me. It'll be great. Uh, but you need a little season. In fact, you recommend maybe a season of retreat of some sort. Say a bit about how we can really address those important questions again about who we are and what God's purpose for us is now. Yeah. One of the things... Excuse me. One of the chapters that Susan and I wrote, um, and she and I both agree that this is really important, that if a woman can take some time off, um, even if she's working full-time, maybe take a weekend or maybe take a single day, or in my case, take even longer than that. Because of our our prodigal daughter, I needed several months to um, have some time to rest and recover and to, to work on my own um, uh, sense of who I was now that my kids were gone. But it, we, we agree that it's really important for a woman to take some time away and to reflect and to pray and to evaluate, what am I good at? What do I love to do? What have I put off during these years of raising my children that maybe now I can actually invest in? Should I go back to school and take some classes? Should I uh, do get some training on the skill that I've always wanted to be able to do? And I think that if a woman will take the time to sort of pull back as she starts the empty nest season and not just jump into the next thing that someone suggests, but pull back and reflect and pray, do some writing, some journaling, some praying, maybe take some uh, tests to determine what your strengths and skills are. You're going to be more um, equipped and better uh, ready to handle uh, moving into the next phase. And that's how I think we discover what God has for us in this next season of life. Susan, I didn't know if you want to add uh, just any, maybe the first thing to start or, uh, you know, what helped you? Maybe there's a verse. Yeah. Well, Barbara was better at this than I was. And I think our tendency is to jump in and volunteer for everything because we are afraid of an emptiness. So I just so agree with Barbara that don't do that. Take some time. And one of the questions to ask yourself is, how has God used me in the past? And where do and ask your husband where do you see me come alive and how God has packaged me ask your children your children know you well where do you what do you see to be my gifts and strengths ask your best friends because that will often that will help you formulate how God might use you in the future and the exciting thing is life is just really beginning in many ways and God has a plan for us and he wants to use us he wants to use us until he takes us home Great insight and encouragement. You'll find it here in Barbara and Susan's Guide to the Empty Nest. It's an updated uh, release of this uh, wonderful book from Bethany House. Barbara Rainey and Susan Yates have written this, and they've spoken together in this for a number of years, and we're just honored to have them with us today on Connecting Faith. We do have some copies to give away, so I just encourage you to give us a call at 877-93-FAITH. 
If you want to sign up for that, we'll do that drawing here at the top of the hour. Barbara and Susan, uh, blessings to you. Thanks for giving us some uh, wise counsel in this advice in this area. And uh, I always look forward to talking with you again down the road. Thanks so much for having. We enjoyed it. All right, you're listening to Connecting Faith, and uh, coming up in uh, just a couple minutes, we're going to get another one of our uh, Into the Word Wednesday sessions with Eric Larson from Frameworks, so you want to stick around for that just ahead here on Faith Radio. to Connecting Faith, and uh, one of our regular features over the last few weeks has been opportunity to learn more about God's Word, and that's coming up right now. Well, welcome to Get in the Word Wednesday. You know, for the last several uh, Wednesdays, we've had the opportunity to dig in a little deeper into God's Word. You know, our passion and conviction here at Faith Radio is that the Scriptures are living and active and able to bring about life transformation for those who choose to read it, study it, and reflect on it, and obey it. And so, uh, we're happy to have this opportunity to connect with gifted uh, teachers and leaders to help us understand it better. And so we've invited Eric Larson back again. Eric is uh, not only a writer and a teacher and a speaker, but he uh, has a publishing ministry called Frameworks Resources, and he has written a great resource called Frameworks. It's How to Navigate the New Testament. It's an extraordinary guide for ordinary people. You can find out more about it at frameworksthebook.com. And, uh, Eric, we've been uh, kind of taking uh, representative sections of the New Testament during our uh, sessions uh, in the past. And today we want to focus on Hebrews. And so maybe before we get deep into Hebrews, tell us a little bit about where Hebrews fits sort of in the overall framework layout of the New Testament. By the way, welcome. It's good to have you back. Thanks, Neil. Good to be here. Yeah, if you look at the 27 uh, writings in the New Testament, the books and letters, they group into six different groups. Um, first is the Gospels, the, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's one group. And then you have a, a history book that forms a group of its own, the Book of Acts. That's a second group. And then you have two groups that are Paul's letters. First are the letters that he wrote to churches, Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, and so on. And after that, there are four letters that Paul wrote to people, two to Timothy, one to Titus, and one to Philemon. And that brings us up to this group today, which is the fifth of six groups, and that's called the general letters. And they were called that because we believe that these letters were were meant for larger audiences. They would circulate these letters through a region, through many churches in a region. And so in this section of general letters, the book of Hebrews takes – the first place being the largest book in that section, and, and for that reason, they would have put it first. It's a, a unique, I guess, a distinctive book, maybe unlike some of the others. Um, talk about in what ways is it distinct? It's distinct, uh, first of all, because the name Hebrews um, is not the name of a person that wrote the book or of a destination. If you look at all the rest of the writings, except for Acts and Revelation, They're all the name of the writer, for example, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, or the name of the recipient, Timothy, Titus, Philemon, or the name of a city, which would be Romans, Corinthians, Ephesians, and so on. And only Hebrews, Revelation, and Acts have names that are not those kinds of names. And 
Hebrews uh, in this context would have the significance of meaning Jewish Christians. And these could have been Christian, Jewish Christians living in a region around Palestine or maybe somewhere outside of Palestine. We don't really know for sure, but uh, most scholars believe that they were believers, obviously, and that they were of Jewish extraction. Uh, I know in the, the beginning of each section in the book, uh, Frameworks, you like to kind of provide some metaphors to help us understand the um, that particular book of the New Testament. So talk about how the letter of Hebrews and a particular sporting event are related. Yeah, when we were thinking about a good metaphor for Hebrews, we, we kind of realized that this is a, a letter written to encourage some Christians who are kind of on the fence to move forward in their faith. They were being pulled backwards into Judaism by their parents and their relatives and by people of that religion, but they were being pulled forward by Christ and the church and all the new life that they were experiencing. So they were really in the middle there, and as we were thinking about different metaphors, uh, one that came to mind was the metaphor of a tug-of-war. And come to find out that the tug-of-war capital of the United States is Oregon, Wisconsin. Hmm. And the president of the United States uh, Tug-of-War Association is a woman named Shelley Richardson, Shelby Richardson, sorry, and she lives in, in uh, Oregon, Wisconsin, and, she, and her group of uh, women, the Oregon Tuggers, were national champions in tug-of-war for almost two decades. Who knew? So we <laughs> use that story of, uh, of Shelby's uh, love for tug-of-war as a way to, to uh, create this metaphor of being pulled in, in a couple of directions. So there's, they're pulled in a couple of directions. There's, uh, there's a lot of comparisons in the letter of Hebrews. So help us uh, dig in a little bit deeper there. Yeah, the, the writer is, is uh, logically trying to um, appeal to the Jewish Christians of lack of uh, or, or, or faith in the Old Testament uh, institutions, such as the religion of Judaism, the, the honoring of Moses and Joshua as leaders, the belief in angels, as, as things that he can compare with Christ. So it's all about Christ being better than the angels, Christ being better than Moses, uh, Christ being having a, a higher priesthood than the Old Testament priest, a better covenant with better promises. So the word would be better. Everything is better with Christ than the, the Jewish religion. And he's hoping, the writer's hoping, that through these logical arguments uh, laid out for these, these people, that they could then realize that they need to, to go forward to Christ. So, you know, hearing that, maybe we'd wonder, say, well, how does that really apply to us? I mean, we're not uh, we're not in the uh, following Judaism. So is, is this relevant and meaningful for us today? Absolutely, because Hebrews shows us in detail the picture of what I would call the fifth gospel. The first four gospels being Jesus' ministry on earth. But now he is our high priest in the heavens. And he's ministering there on our behalf. He's a great intercessor, and we pray, and he, he intercedes for us to the throne of God. So um, this whole role that he has been playing for 2,000 years um, as the heavenly high priest is all laid out for us in, in detail in this, uh, quote, fifth gospel, the, the, uh, the letter to Hebrews. And as believers, it's just rich, the, the depth of understanding that we can get when we read all about it. 
Help us uh, maybe navigate Hebrews a little bit. I know there's uh, you kind of refer to them as uh, carrots and stick in some way, but uh, give us a little framework of the letter itself. When you're trying to encourage your teenager or a friend of yours to do something that you think they should be doing, you, you have two choices. One is what I would call carrots, and the other would be something called sticks. And the carrots are to get the person to move forward, and the sticks are to encourage them to move forward by, you know, giving them a good spank on the behind or something like that. So in in Hebrews, you have both of these being used by the author as incentives and negative incentives to try to get these folks to come forward to Christ. And in uh, in, in frameworks, we listed 13 of these positive <clears throat> carrot incentives, and they all start with the word let us. Let us hear, fear, let us be diligent, let us hold on, let us approach God's throne, let us go on to perfection, and so on and so forth. All of these let's go kind of uh, phrases, um, and those are the positive things. And on the negative side, you have five warnings that I would call sticks. And here they are, do not ignore God's Son. Do not harden your hearts toward God. Do not remain as baby Christians. Do not fall back to your old religion. Do not fall away from the grace of God. So both of these types of incentives are used throughout. And when you see the list of these things, and then when you read them, uh, it all makes sense to you. Talking uh, frameworks today about the book of Hebrews, one of the things that we didn't uh, touch on is who wrote Hebrews. And I know that maybe, you know, shouldn't matter to us, but we always kind of like to know. Do we know uh, who the author of this book was? No, we don't, unfortunately, and there's been a, a debate raging for, you know, almost 2,000 years about this, and for many, many centuries, it was uh, believed that Paul wrote it, and the reason for that being the theology that's contained in the letter, plus the depth of understanding of the Old Testament, someone like Paul, who would have who'd been brought up in a scholar in that field would have certainly known that, and uh, so for a long time, conservative Christians believed that Paul wrote it, but in more recent years, uh, some some critical analysis of the of the words that the, the letter uses and the the phraseology and so forth, and the depth of the of the of the language that's in there in terms of the Greek language, um, suggest that maybe that was not Paul's style. So maybe it wasn't him that wrote it. So we really don't know who it was. Could have been under Paul's direction that someone else wrote it. We don't know. But as I like to say, when we get to heaven, go to the Paul table and just ask him, and he'll tell you whether he put it or not. I like it. And uh, one of the things that you always uh, provide us with a little bit of application and uh, appreciate you said that, you know, Hebrews uh, helps us to remember that uh, the Christian life is sort of like riding a bike. Just say a word about that. Yeah, I, I got that quote from um, a great Bible teacher by the name of Henrietta Mears, and she wrote an overview of the New Testament as well. And uh, she said this, the Christian life is riding a bicycle. If you do not go on, you go off. So it's, a, it's that whole idea of going forward or you're going to fall off. Well, we want to continue to uh, go forward in our faith, and one of the ways that we can do that is to... Uh read and interact with God's Word and helping us to do that uh, today and uh, on our uh, Wednesday get-together is Eric Larson. Uh, we're talking about getting into the Word Wednesday, been talking about Hebrews today. 
as uh, Eric has spelled it out for us in his uh, book, Frameworks. And you can find out more at uh, frameworksthebook.com. Eric is a uh, writer, a teacher, a speaker, and for the past uh, three decades been helping people uh, crack open and navigate their Bibles. He has a publishing company called Frameworks Resources as well. And Eric, so appreciate you uh, helping us today and encouraging us to get into the Word. And we look forward to our next visit. Thanks, Neil. All right. Hope you appreciated that opportunity to learn a little bit more about God's Word. That's something we're passionate about here at Faith Radio. Right, to learn, to grow, but to strengthen our faith and to connect faith to life. But coming up uh, tomorrow on Connecting Faith, Dr. J. Scott Reese will return to take your health-related questions. He's also written your best doctor visit ever, and we'll offer some simple steps to make our next doctor visit productive and effective. We're going to talk, among other things, about weight loss and diets and and maybe allergies and colds, all those things. So join us tomorrow. We'll open up the phone lines for the full hour and talk to Dr. J. Scott Reese here on Connecting Faith. Don't forget our uh, our spring uh, Choose Joy devotional giveaway, giving one away a day. It's Kay Warren's great devotional Choose Joy, and we're giving one away each day. You can sign up for yours at MyFaithRadio.com. That's MyFaithRadio.com. And you can also uh, check out the Connecting Faith show page when you're there, myfaithradio.com. And don't forget, our spring fundraiser begins next Tuesday. Thanks for listening to this Connecting Faith podcast. These conversations are available because of listener support. And you can make a gift right now at myfaithradio.com. To avoid missing future editions of Connecting Faith, you can subscribe to the podcast today at iTunes or your podcast player. And thanks for sharing this audio link with a friend and growing the awareness and impact of Connecting Faith.